Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So that happened. After several months of will he or won't he wonderings, President Barack Obama went YOLO, issuing a new set of executive actions to fill the space where a comprehensive immigration reform bill should be. Immigration reporter Elise Foley joins us to take us through what's about to happen. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, we came one vote short of approving the Keystone Pipeline, all because Senator Mary Landrieu had a weird theory about how it might save her doomed re-election prospects. Our own Kate Shepard is on hand to describe this strange time in our lives. Finally, the CIA torture report. Will it ever come out? All of that is in doubt as legislators and the White House fight over redactions. We'll find out what secrets we can with reporter Ali Watkins. I'm Jason Lincolns, and here's what happened first. So we are now living in an empire, you guys, and it's all because... About four million people who we didn't have the money or the means to deport will continue to not be deported. Joining us to talk about this, Zach Carter. Say hello. Hello. And uh, millennial reporter extraordinaire Elise Foley. What's up? You've been reporting this story like practically since you were in utero. Four and a half years. I don't remember a time in my life where you weren't reporting on immigration. So this is a big day yesterday, correct? <laughs> It was a big day yesterday. It was probably my biggest day uh, covering immigration, other than maybe the Senate passing the immigration reform bill, which was exciting at the time and then ended up going nowhere. But yes, yeah, so at the time it was very busy. It was pretty exciting, and like it was, I, it was like such a sense of sense of optimism when that bill passed, and then the optimism quickly, basically, went away. Yes, it, it died pretty quickly. It, it really was. I mean, at the time, it seemed like, okay, Republicans, look how many Republicans in the Senate voted for this. Like, now in the House, they'll have to take it up. But, yeah, it quickly became clear that they didn't have that same feeling so, that others did. Yeah. So Obama, what Obama did yesterday, obviously, is at the end of a long harangue between he and essentially House Republicans that wouldn't take up this bill. And then after the election, Boehner would pointedly refuse to like say whether or not the House would move anytime soon on immigration. So acting upon a promise he made, he issued a new set of policies yesterday. Can you take us through what? Yeah, definitely. So there are some smaller changes that have to deal with um, high-tech workers, things like that. Um, I won't get too much into those because they are the less... Um, affect less people. But the big centerpiece of this is expanding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy, DACA, that helps young people who came to the U.S. as children. He's expanding that. That's going to help potentially as many as, you know, 300,000 people. And then the biggest piece is that they're creating this new Deferred Action program that allow people who are parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents to apply for the same 
temporary work authorization and the ability to stay. So that's that's huge. That means that you can work legally, which currently these people can't do. A lot of times you can get driver's licenses. Currently, they might be driving without a license because they have no other way to get around in some areas of the country. So that's the biggest part, and that's the part that's causing the most anger from Republicans. Wait, there's anger? What? what why are they angry? Because Obama is the emperor now. I mean, they, they say that Congress is the only Congress can give legal status, and Obama can't. Obama says, look, this isn't really legal status. We can take this away at any time. And it's a case-by-case thing. So the White House's argument is that this is prosecutorial discretion, which is used by, you know, prosecutors all over. They arrest a bunch of people maybe for something, and they have to decide who they're going to spend resources going after. Um, They say that this is basically the same thing with immigration. So this is making it so that they have fewer people to go after, and they can instead focus on the people who are, you know, criminals or came across recently or maybe suspected terrorists or whatever. So so that's the idea behind it. That's why the White House says that it's legally justified and why a lot of legal experts say that it's legally justified. Well, I, I'm curious, at least, I mean, because you've been covering this, covering this forever, like, what, what has the, uh, the, the reaction been from, from, like, immigration advocates? I mean, for years now, you've, you've heard immigration advocates really, really laying into the president for deporting so many people because, I mean, Jason was saying earlier that, you know, we don't have the, the means or, or, the, or, or the money to, to deport all these people. But, yeah, it can't be done by magic, apparently. Yeah, but, so. but, I mean, he has, he has deported, I think, like, more people per year than any other president, right? Has, th- has this changed the relationship between, between these, these groups? I think somewhat. Um, I, th- I think in some ways it's made them even more determined to go forward with pushing him to help more people. So he had said for years they had been pushing him, and he said that he couldn't do certain things. He said that he wouldn't be able to do something to stop the deportation of young people who came as kids. Then he ended up deciding to do that and saying that that was legally justified. Then they said, can you stop more deportations? He said, I'm not a king. I can't do that. Then they had this review. They determined that it was legal, that there were things that they could do, and they're doing this. So I think in some ways uh, immigration activists are looking at this and saying, all right, we have proved that this is something that we can do. We can have this influence. We can get, um, you know, I, I was at something yesterday where some an activist was saying, we got the most powerful man in the world to listen to us and to do what we asked him to do. And that, you know, just makes them more motivated to keep going forward. Um, they are extremely happy, but they're also pretty disappointed, a lot of them. A lot of people have been really big in the advocacy community are these young people who came as kids, these dreamers, and they have gotten help for themselves, but what they really had turned to was help for their parents, and they didn't get that through this. They really wanted to get something that would help their parents. Um, It's only parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents who are being helped. So that's something that is, um, I think, really, really disappointing to a lot of people and something they're going to keep pushing for. Is there a sense, like, of how many people the, the, the White House expects this to help about, versus how many people, like, are, are looking for help right now? Um, well, there are about 11.2, 11.3 um, million undocumented immigrants in total. This portion with the parents should potentially help about 4.1 million, um, expanding DACA, maybe 300,000, 270,000. So, um, and then they're, they're doing these other policies that might bring it up to about $5 million. So it's a huge chunk of the undocumented population. It's you know, a very big deal. Don't want to understate that. <laughs> we, we made a couple of jokes about 
empire here. Um, and and the, the actions Obama ta has taken that have angered Republicans uh, based upon the sort of expansion of executive power here. My What I understand about immigration law is the way it's been written for years is it lays a lot of responsibility and discretion at the White House's feet. And <clears throat> Obama is also kind of backed up by a litany of federal society lawyers who have said, well, you know what, guys, he's actually allowed to do this. But it does change some governing norms, right? And I, I think that maybe... Your most dedicated Obama stands don't want to confront the possibility there may one day be a Republican president again. But there are things now, ideas that maybe could spin in the head of a Republican president that may make fans of this law. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I think it is true that in like we haven't seen something on the scale from from other presidents. But I mean, in at although least there there now. actually was something by uh, George H. W. Bush that wasn't the same number, but in terms of the number of total undocumented immigrants at the time was maybe comparable. So this isn't completely unprecedented right, but I'm in terms of the scale. I'm but yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely a concern. Um, I'm contemplating a future where a future Republican president maybe just doesn't enforce Obamacare or just doesn't enforce certain... Let's, let's uh, people, <clears throat> people who frack get away with... Uh, well, I mean, look, I mean, the, the, this happens all the time under Republican presidents. I mean, bank, bank regulators didn't enforce bank, bank laws. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. they, they didn't enforce bank regulations or bank, bank laws under, under President George Bush. I mean, and that's, that's what, you know, the, the Clintonites are always saying when they say, well, don't blame us for the deregulation of the 90s, blame George Bush for bad enforcement. Um, I mean, that's just part of life. You, you have to live with the fact that there is some agency of the government that has to enforce laws, and if they don't want to, they're not going to. What do you think the next few months are going to be like now that this action has been taken? Well, I think that in Congress, it's going to be sort of, you know, crazy. They've promised to do whatever they can to block this. I'm not entirely sure that they can block it. Um, one thing is this agency that's going to carry out most of it is fee-funded. So if they even shut down the government, that doesn't matter because it's going forward anyway. Um, <laughs> but they can try and attach, you know, riders and say, you can't do this. Um They've, the White House has said the president will veto those, but I don't think that that means House Republicans and Senate Republicans aren't going to try. Um, they're, you know, Ted Cruz has said they're going to try and block nominations. Um, there might be lawsuits. So I think you'll see a big flurry of efforts to try and stop it. Um, and then maybe a little bit of a slowdown on that as people realize that it's actually not as easy to stop it as they might think. Um, and then next year, we'll get to start seeing Republicans enter the presidential race and go on and on about how we should be deporting parents of U.S. citizens. And Couldn't they just you know? pass an immigration law like yeah. the RNC wants them to? They, they could, and they, you know, some of them say that maybe that they still want to, but then, you know, over the past few years, the reasoning by House Republicans for why they can't pass an immigration bill is that they can't pre trust the president to actually enforce anything. So why that excuse would go away now that the president has done anything bigger, I really don't understand. So I, I just don't see that being something that's easy to do. Maybe they pass some border security bill and then say, look, we did some immigration reform. Um, something to actually address the 11.2, 11.3 million people in the U.S., Without status, I just don't see that coming. But like, I mean, these the Republican threats that you see, like, oh well, we're we're gonna like hold up nominees, or or even in some quarters, you know, we're gonna shut down the government. I mean, 
They're already doing this stuff. I mean, they've right. been doing it for like years. So, I mean, to what extent do you do you think like they can shut down the government really harder, yeah. hard, and mean it this time? But I mean, Democrats have always been really good at like running people, scared though, though like, with the with the shutdown that that really are like do not want to do that. That I I just don't I don't know if they'd be able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. I think that they are considering maybe like doing little short term bills so that they can fight about it over and over, but. Shutting down the government, I think, is is still really the extreme view, and I don't know that it would prevail again. Well, do you, do you get the feeling the Democrats, like in the lame duck session, are are trying to trying to do things with Republicans to sort of make up for this rift with the between the president and Republicans, or or do you feel like this is this you know part of business as usual? Um, no, I think it's the same. <laughs> I think it's just the same as it's been. I mean, you'll see them. You, they did their Keystone vote this week with the Republicans on that. Yeah. But no, I don't. I don't think that they. I don't think there's anything Senate Democrats could do that would make Republicans feel happier about what just happened. Uh, well, one good bottom line <laughs> is, I guess, that we can count on at least fully being. An employed immigration reporter for fingers crossed quite some time to come. Not <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Elise, for joining us today. Okay, so this week, uh, America was pushed to the brink of perhaps passing a law that would create or create the circumstances in which the Keystone Pipeline could exist. Joining us to talk about this today, we have... Kate Shepard, Huffington Post environment and energy reporter. Okay, so Kate, let's let's just like get some basics about the Keystone Pipeline and what it is. Well, I mean, the basics are this is a, would be a 1,600-mile pipeline that would come from the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, all the way down to oil refineries in Texas. It would carry an oil, uh, sometimes it's called tar sands oil, uh, it's called um, bitumen. Um, It's just this heavier type of oil that comes from the tar sands. It's more carbon intensive than conventional oil. Um, And for that reason, uh, a lot of environmental advocates are really worried about uh, creating this pipeline because it would open up to the development of the tar sands and the export of that, that oil. Why does it have XL in the name? Why do they call it the Keystone XL Pipeline? Yeah. Well, there's already a Keystone Pipeline. This is just a bigger, badder Keystone Pipeline. <laughs> extra large. It's extra large, large and more in charge. More in charge. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> good, good, it's good branding. Trans-Canada experts on, on how to brand a pipeline, I guess. The, um, so, so this has been a long, hotly debated, sub, well, I mean, hotly debated and at the same time sort of coyly debated in, in Washington because at the head of all of this is President Obama who doesn't show his cards on whether he would like willingly sign this into law or not. He's been kind of pussyfooting around the matter and, and the, the conventional wisdom now is that he would sign it into law if he could get something in return. From from Republicans. Yeah, well, it's it's this pipeline is really has become so much more about what the pipeline means than about the pipeline itself. It's a totemic I mean, it's, issue. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, this pipeline's been under consideration for six years now. I feel like I might be covering this in the geriatric ward someday. <laughs> um, I'm I've been covering this pipeline for quite a while, um, and pipelines get approved in the U.S. all the time. 
Uh, there's 2.6 million miles of pipeline in the U.S., but this one's become this sort of big issue because it crosses the international border, which means the State Department has to decide whether or not the pipeline's in the, interne- in the national interest. And so it sort of elevates this above a normal pipeline approval process and puts this at the feet of Obama, Obama, a president who has made climate change uh, a big issue, especially in his second term here. And so it's become this sort of test for him and test for people who... You know, support him or support this pipeline. Um, sort of as, as about what our energy future looks like and what our climate future looks like. And now, as crazy as this debate has been this week, it got like I think a whole lot more just plain and simple nonsensical because Mary Landrew, who uh, is facing a runoff in in the Louisiana Senate election, uh, and who will lose that runoff, by the way, um, to to Representative Bill Cassidy, if if the polling models we see are, are going to hold up uh, in a sort of desperate attempt to try to, I guess, manufacture some notion among her constituents that she's got real clout, um, uh, attempted to sort of will the pipeline over the goal line uh, in the Senate. And after all the strange remonstrations, she fell one vote short of, 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 of doing so. You, you were actually sort of like witness to these events, right? So, okay, what was this like? Yeah, I mean, Mary Landers has wanted to approve a Keystone Pipeline for quite a while. She's had legislation that would force approval of it at least for the last year. I don't remember when she actually first introduced it, but it's been quite a while. She's wanted to do this for for quite some time. Uh, I think she saw this sort of opportunity after the election when Democrats had just lost pretty badly, and she thought maybe she could use this as an opportunity to push this pipeline through and also add another notch to her belt and show, hey, look, I'm somebody who can get things done in Washington. I know what I'm doing here. I have power. Uh, I think she she thought that would really help her build her case. Um, and, and I think she also saw this as an opportunity, even if she couldn't necessarily get the pipeline through, to say, look, I'm going up against the administration on this issue and to distance herself from from right. President Obama and, and to use those things to sort of build the case about why she is the person who should be representing Louisiana. But I think it was going to be a tough fight no matter what, right? The House passed their own bill, which was sponsored by Bill Cassidy, who's the person who's running against her. Right, so it wasn't, is, yeah. it wasn't a point where she could distinguish herself from Cassidy on this. It was a point where she could say, like, look, I'm just like him on this, which I don't really think that's something that uh, necessarily sways voters. And I talked to folks in Louisiana, and most of them said, Louisiana voters don't really care about the Keystone XL pipeline. It doesn't go into Louisiana. It goes to Texas. I mean, they like oil and gas in Louisiana, but I don't know that this pipeline is the thing that is going to sell them on Mary Landrieu. Can I tell you guys the zaniest thing about this whole thing? Is From what I read in the New York Times after action report on the vote, apparently one of the pitches that Landrieu was making to Democrats was, hey, you'll be helping President Obama out a lot if you give him something to veto. And it's like, <laughs> but you want this past, right? It was just like, it's just like, I, I felt like the whole theory of like Landrew's approach here was just zany. I don't think, I mean, look, I don't think she's trying to, um, to get reelected with this thing. I think, I think she's, because as, as Kate just mentioned, it doesn't even go through Louisiana. The oil and gas industry likes it, but you know, not everybody in Louisiana works for ExxonMobil. You know, I mean, if, if she's trying to win over voters, uh, you know, she, she's not going to. There aren't a whole lot of people who are going to go out to the polls based on this issue, even in energy states. So, I mean, to me, this is this, she's she is the senator who has uh, the, the one senator who is a Democrat who the U.S. Chamber of Commerce 
really strongly considered endorsing um, for, for the 2014 cycle. And I think they ultimately did not endorse her, but they didn't endorse Cassidy either, which was something something that I, th I think is one reason. I mean, if you look at the election results from, from a couple weeks ago, she actually won the, the, the initial election by, by you know, a few thousand votes. Um, she's just not going to win in a, in a, in a runoff. Um, but I, I think she's trying to, she's trying to show her, her corporate lobbyist buddies, you know, hey, look, I still got your back, and, and when I'm looking for a job after 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 Congress, you know that I'm one of you, and I'm on this team. And I, you know, hey, look, I gave it a go with the Keystone Pipeline after the election. I mean, couldn't get it through, but she got 59 votes on it. I mean, that is uh, that is 59 more votes than uh, than they were than they got, you know, all year all year round. Yeah, um, I, I think. I mean, I think it obviously does probably help her with whatever happens to her after after December 6th. But I think she really did want this bill passed. I mean, she clearly had invested a lot of time and, and political capital in getting this through. I you know, Looking at her face at the press conference after she lost, it was clear that she, you know, really would like to stick around Washington. She hasn't really—she's yeah. you know, been in Washington for quite a while. She's not that old, but she's been here—I mean, I don't know—she's been elected office for quite some time. Uh, she made some plaintive— plea that you know, she's going to keep working on this until she leaves Washington, and she hopes that's not too soon. <laughs> like, it, was, it was one of the sadder events I've witnessed uh, after, after that vote. It makes me wonder like, why people want to become politicians. Like, I mean, I, I, I sort of, like, uh, to some <laughs> because extent... Because they can make money afterwards. I, I mean, I get, that's one reason, but like, like if, if Kate's right, and, and like Mary Landry really does want to get this thing passed, and she wants to stick around Washington, so... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. She can do things like pass the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, that's just, I mean, I don't know. That seems like kind of a sad life ambition. I mean, I'm, I'm not a senator. She's accomplished a lot more than I have with my life. I'm, I'm not dumping on her. But I would just think that if you were in that position, you would want more out of life. And, and that is that is a strange ambition to to like hang your your sort of sense of well being and self respect on. I mean, I can't disagree with that. But let's look at this more broadly, okay? Because you know, okay, we're through this like this sort of like zany. I called it a costume drama version of the Keystone XL pipeline debate. But you know, once the lame duck session is over, it's a debate that will come up again, and there's a very real likelihood that the the next Congress will actually put a bill on Obama's desk. And like I said before, it's not without some hope that he might sign it. Like I said, people think that he'll sign it if he gets something in exchange, which I think is a fruitless thing to be looking for at this point in time. But one of the theories that people have uh, that I've read is that for all the opposition the environmental lobby has given to uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, that Obama should feel in the clear to sign this because he's done so much 
other stuff on his environmental agenda to offset whatever danger the pipeline may pose. Do you, do you find that that argument holds any water outside of maybe Jonathan Jade's columns on it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because I think it really does highlight some differences in the, in the environmental community, right? I don't think the Keystone Pipeline would, would be have been a big deal for environmentalists if some of the more sort of grassroots, um, I don't want to say, like, not, they, they are, I don't want to say put us on the spectrum, but they're probably further to the left of a lot of the sort of inside Washington right. lobbying well, kind of environmental true, groups. Yeah. So if you think it's like it's the folks from 350.org right. are really the ones who got this to be a big issue. And I think that pushed some of the environmental groups like Sierra Club and Rainforest Action and, and NRDC. A lot of them came on board be, you know, after that pressure came from other you know, sort of more grassroots kind of groups. Um, I think those those folks see this as a real test for Obama's um, legacy on climate, whereas some of the sort of more inside the beltway types probably would say, yeah, he's doing a lot anyway. This is probably not the most important thing that he'll be doing. All these other things he's doing are really important well, and, in and a grander scheme. Well, that's an interesting thing about the the, the whole debate. Like you mentioned, that, that it was actually like activism that put this on the radar. It's, it's interesting to me to see the degree to which the administration has actually listened to that activism because the State Department did a report on this forever ago, and the report said, let's build a pipeline. That's cool, right? And and the administration all of a sudden was oh, wow. like, yeah, they, 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 they backed off, and they backed off for years, and I've always assumed that at some point they're going to cave and do it because there are a lot of corporate interests, and usually when you have corporate interests against do-gooders who only want things that are good for the world and can't make a, a billion dollars out of something, the do-gooders lose. Um, but, he's, but he actually has held the line on it for a, lo- for a really long period of yeah. time. I mean, do you, do you feel like this is, this is becoming a... Like, do you, th- you, you talked about the symbolic value of this earlier. Like, do, you, do you think the president is seeing climate change as like a, a legacy issue for him? Remember, I, I absolutely think that Obama sees climate change as a, as a legacy issue for him. I think that's why you see him doing a lot of things that are probably going to be really tough for him to get by Congress going forward. International Climate Agreement, U.S. greenhouse gas regulations. I mean, the, the, the things are, those aren't, those are not easy for him to do. Um, I, I think on the, the Keystone question, uh, he has drawn this out for a very long time. I think a lot of that is in response to environmental groups raising real questions about the pipeline. Um, but I think right now the reason this is it's drawn out at this particular point in time is because of backlash in, in Nebraska. It's not sort of the inside the beltway kind of backlash on this at this point in time. The landowners in Nebraska sued the state because they said that the process they had used to approve the pipeline route was was not legal. The state court initial agreement agreed with them, so now it's gone to the state Supreme Court. So we're waiting for a final decision there. And I think that's probably a, a pretty fair reason to say, look, we can't make a final decision because we don't even have a legal route through Nebraska. And if they had to change the legal route, that would change the environmental and impact analysis, and right? And the cost and yeah. all, 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 all kinds of things. And that's a, that's a thing I wanted to ask you about is that uh, way back, this six years ago, the projections on what Keystone would cost were X number of dollars. And the profits that could be wrought from Keystone were also... Uh, an amount that could be estimated. And uh, there are reports that suggest that in the intervening year, since all this all this contretemps has, has taken place, that now the costs of building the pipeline have gone up, the uh, amount of profits that can be, can be reaped from this venture have, have gone down. Congress can pass a bill approving the pipeline, Obama can sign it, but they can't actually compel these corporate interests to build it in the United States. Isn't there a chance that... TransCanada will simply opt for the cheaper option, which is to take it out to the east of Canada? I think, uh, I, I think yes. I, I, absolutely. The case for building it right now is not as strong as it was a few years ago. Oil is so cheap, it's not as cost competitive to develop tar sands and ship it through a pipeline like Keystone right now. Um, 
I, I think a lot of the, I think TransCanada and other companies are looking to build pipelines will want to have approval for these kind of things in case that situation changes, which I'm sure will at some point in the future be much more cost competitive again. Um, I, the question with the other pipelines is, can they build alternative routes out of, out of, of the tar sands as well? There's a proposal to build pipeline to the west in Canada that's been delayed, and they it, it got federal approval in Canada, but it's now delayed because of opposition from First Nations groups there, and right. it's probably not going to be done until 2018 at this point, or not even started until 2018, I think is is the projection. It's still a little ways off. This idea to build a, a Trans-Canada pipeline to the east, Energy East, also just at the beginning process, they just filed their application last month, but there's also a bunch of pushback on that in in Canada as well. And so it's it's not necessarily an easy course ahead if Keystone isn't approved. They still have to get it through Canada. And if the Canadians can't get pipelines through Canada, who can they get pipelines through? <laughs> <laughs> what will our noble what will our noble petrol petrochemical industry do? If you just keep digging and digging, you can take it out in whatever, China or Australia or something. That's right. And then that's I mean it's probably really a green way to to do the extraction is to go through the earth. Right. Or a safe way to just like end life as we know it on this planet. <laughs> I think Either there's way. a movie about this, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but back to the question on the on, on Matthew McConaughey on, is going to save us. Don't worry. Don't even worry. He'll come back in time. Yes. Um, but on the question of Obama, I mean, I, I actually think that for right now, for Republicans, the Keystone holds much more value as a symbolic thing to pose Obama on. If he came out tomorrow and said, "Fine, have your pipeline." That would kind of take away a big talking point for them. <laughs> but uh, do Republicans vote on this stuff? Like, I get that Republicans give money on this, but I just don't know how many conservative voters are like, man, I am really waiting to watch, you know, John Boehner's promises about my electricity bills, you know, watch my, my cost per kilowatt hour go down by, like, one-tenth of one cent uh, because of this. I mean, like, I, I just don't know if people, people respond to things like this. Yeah, it sort of depends on time, right? When gas is expensive, people get more into developing oil and making gas cheaper and... All the et cetera talking points about that. Right now, gas is cheap, so people are excited. Yeah, it's not necessarily top of top of the list for them right now. Oh well, we look forward to having this debate again in Congress, probably in February. Uh, January. Oh, you're ju- <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Here I am, or maybe, not optimistic enough. But, uh, <laughs> but maybe, care. but maybe. I mean, the Nebraska court decision could come really anytime now. Uh, so maybe the after that decision comes, the State Department's going to let agencies finish up their evaluation, and then it could come, that, that decision could come sooner rather than later. Well, it sounds to me that by the time it's resolved, we will have been able to crush coal into diamonds with our bare hands. That's not reasonable. That's the thing, yeah, because that, you need time as the force. Yeah, time, the, yeah. pressure, <laughs> and the impending sense of woe. <laughs> We are back, and we are joined by Allie Watkins, formerly of McClatchy, now the Huffington Post, basically crushing it. Pretty much crushing it. I Pretty think. much destroying it. You are way too kind. And so we're going to talk about what's going on with the CIA torture report. <laughs> we tortured a bunch of people a long time ago. We're just now getting around to like talking about it. Uh, and a report is currently being fought over in the halls of power. Allie, why don't you tell us about what's been going on? Okay, so the story of what's been going on is a long story that starts back in, like, 2001. But recently, there's... So there's this massive... We made s'mores for this long story, so go for it. (laughs) So when we're talking about the report side of this, there's this massive 6,000... 
500-page-ish report that the Senate Intelligence Committee has been compiling for years and years, five years, $40 million later. And we've been waiting to see this 500-page executive summary of the report. And, uh, you know, this entire study has been shrouded in controversy since it started. You know, the CIA didn't want the Senate Intelligence Committee to do it. There was all these fights over documents and how the White House was involved. So there's always been a lot of questions around it. Um, So the issue of actually publicly releasing parts of the document has obviously inspired everybody to get a lot more angry about it. Um, So the, you have these 6,000 pages that have been, you know, sitting around, were finally completed and they were voted, I think, complete in 2012, but there's been a lot of adjustments since then. But the committee voted to release the 500 page executive summary in April. And we've kind of been waiting since then to see it uh, because there's been all this fighting over what information to black out. Um, The committee was pretty optimistic that they were going to get it back um, from the White House and be ready to push it out the door. But they got the report back from the original declassification review in August, and they weren't happy with the amount of information that was redacted. Um, So there's been this constant tug of war since with the committee saying, we want to release this information, the White House saying, you can't, we need to black it out. Um, So it's come down to this question. And then, you know, what's really accelerated the the debate in in the past couple weeks has been this unexpected timeline that's been stamped on this thing now, because once the Republicans take over the Senate, um, the report... It's kind of a weird situation, but the report would come under the control of the Intelligence Committee leadership, right. which would be Republican in January, who are obviously completely opposed to this report. What the, uh, let's talk about some of the redactions. Uh, it seems to me the key issue here are, are these, these pseudonyms, mm-hmm. you know, Elvis Costello, Lana Del Rey. Yeah. Uh, that various intelligent, <laughs> various Bono. Uh, I hope Bono is one of them. I would love to see Bono as a torture. I, don't, I was just saying, I don't know if I want to see Bono torture various, people. But various, I gather, like, field agents? Let's go to a YouTube really show. Really, the yes. torturers. Uh, essentially, yeah. yeah. So we know that, you know, higher level CIA officials are named by name in this report. Because right. a lot of people already know, you know, Jose Rodriguez, a lot of these people had things to do with it. That's not a secret. But the covert officers who were involved in these black sites... Um, some of them are still undercover. And you do have this question of revealing their identities, potentially revealing their identities. The question, and what I understand the fight is really about, is that the committee is using very specific pseudonyms. You know, so as opposed to just a CIA agent, it's CIA agent B said to CIA agent C, this happened. So the question that the intelligence community is really fighting over is that you know, you may be shielding the exact information of these people, but by saying Agent B was here and then was here and was promoted here and did this and this, it's very easy for people to kind of track down who this person is, you know, even though the name is necessarily a pseudonym. But so from here, the point of view of someone trying to work all this out, it also distorts the narrative when you can't tell who talked to who and when. Yeah, so it's kind of this strange fight that I think is probably happening ethically, you know, because part of it, a lot of these covert officers have probably already been outed in the media. Um, because there have been all these reports through the years of people who have been discovered to have been involved in this. Um, but I think the real issue here is that this would be official confirmation of, you know, this is a covert officer's identity. But it does. You do have this question of, well, what about the narrative? Because if you don't see how this information was traced through and how this program was operated through all these different channels, then you do kind of lose how widespread the abuses were. Now, Ali, you know this a lot better than I do. I don't, I don't cover this the way you do. Um, but I, I, I'm always a little bit confused. I've been confused by this debate because on the one hand, 
it's not official confirmation because they're not even actually giving the real name. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying a lot of these people are out. But, but then wh- why not give official confirmation? I mean, in a, a lot of cases, we're talking about people torturing people. Shouldn't, shouldn't, that, shouldn't that be something that the public is, is made aware of? Shouldn't there be some sort of, some, some sort of accountability for, uh, for people who are involved in these programs? Yeah, I think that is the hardest question that the Senate has decided to totally punt on. Um, and I think every agency is kind of, including the president, has decided to totally not address um, you know, we've, we've heard said that this report is not going to be an indictment. You know, the, the crux of this is supposed to be exhibiting how torture is ineffective. You know, it's not necessarily supposed to be this person did this and you should charge him with this, um, which is, I think, a real difficult reality for that I think a lot of people who are very expectant about this report are going to have to face, that we're, we're not going to get those kind of answers. We're not going to get those kinds of examples of accountability, and we're not really even going to get the opportunity. It's more like, we're a bunch of well-intended people who went sociopathic for a yeah. brief period of time, and gosh, we're sorry. Mistakes were made. Uh, I mean, they, we tortured we some learned folks. A, we learned a lot from that period of yeah. psychopathy. Look we, forward, <laughs> not backward. It's that entire thing that's coming right. back in this. And part of it, there is this weird, fuzzy question, and it gets really down into the legal weeds, but at the end of the day, this is a complicated conversation, that... You know, the people, the, the covert officers who were doing these things were largely following orders, or that's the defense that's put forth at least. Right. Mm-hmm. You have another argument against Nuremberg that. Or- yeah, you have another <laughs> argument against that saying, you know, not only that precedent, but when you take an oath of service to an office, you know, you say, if I am given the order to do something illegal, I have a duty to speak out against that. You know, so you have that line in there too, but then you have another layer on it that says, well, technically this stuff was legal uh, yeah, that's right. by the OLC opinion. So it's by no means a cut and dry conversation. So the the question of whether or not you out these people runs into all kinds of legal weeds. And so the Senate is, from what I can understand, kind of choosing to just say, oh, no worries, they aren't going to be identified. But I think there is a real question there of saying, are they going to be identified mm-hmm. What does it mean if we officially confirm their mm-hmm. identification? You know, there, I think there right. is an ethical debate there, even though the immediate reaction would be, well, they tortured people, they should be outed. So, well, I, and so uh, just along those lines, this, this is going to take a little while to set up, because I was at this, conf- this Center for American Progress conference uh, this, okay. this week, and Samantha Powers, mm-hmm. the UN ambassador, was there. And uh, for people who don't know, the CAP, the Center for American Progress, that's sort of like a think tank where this sort of democratic establishment puts forth all the ideas. Like, if they could just get whatever they wanted, it's, it's, it's somewhere in a CAP report. So this conference is really like for, for telling people what sort of the, the elite in the party are, are thinking right now. And, and Samantha Powers asked what she thinks about progressive values. And she said, well, I think probably people would define corporate, this is Samantha Power speaking here, people would define core progressive values in different ways. For me, it would start with regard for human dignity. Do, do people in the in the the communities you know that you, you report on recognize that there, there are foreign policy implications to this? Do they, are they concerned about about the implications for people like Samantha Power when she goes out and says she cares about dignity? That there's this torture report that's being held up? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that those interests kind of intersected hugely in the um, I think it was two weeks ago that the UN delegation kind of tying it to Sam Powers' that's statements. Right, yeah. yeah, that the US delegation appeared before the UN Committee Against Torture for the first time since 2006, which was a really big deal. I mean, this is in the when you think about what happened from 2006 to now, well, we did a lot of sketchy shit. Um, and so we kind of had to answer for that, you know, in that setting, and I think that was the first time 
it didn't get as much play as I really think it should have this whole UN conversation mm-hmm. because I think that's where we had to realize that this this torture report has become a kind of domestic issue, but the bigger idea of torture, of treatment of detainees, expands way outside our borders. And at the end of the day, it really is an international conversation. Um, so I, I think that the challenging part of this story is that so much of it is clouded by domestic politics, mm-hmm. you know? And, and you had the whole CIA spying thing and the computer hacking and the Panetta review and all these fun little policy dramas that were happening in Washington. <laughs> yeah. They, but, they were fun to watch. I they mean, were the great CIA to was, watch. was spying on the Senate committee that was trying to do the oversight. For yeah, them. and I mean, it's it a wild. great story. But <laughs> when you talk to people outside the Beltway, they, they don't really, I mean, when I talked to my friends about this story, within two weeks, they had no idea what was going on. So well, you have these fun policy stories inside the Beltway, but the difficult part of this whole report, I think, is remembering that it expands way beyond that. And that's the hard part. When, when you start paying attention to the policy arguments and, and all these debates over that, you lose the real core of what this report's supposed to do, which is exhibit how we totally strayed from American values. And I think it's coming at an even more important time because it's really easy to look at this report and say, we messed up, we shouldn't have tortured people, we did bad things. But if you went out to someone on the street right now and said, the U.S. just captured the guy from ISIS who beheaded James Foley, do you think we should waterboard him? That's not an easy answer and that's not an easy question. So I think that it's it's coming it's going the difficult part is going to be transcending that policy battle and applying those lessons to how we're handling things internationally right now. And I don't know that the conversation's gotten there, which should concern lawmakers, but I don't think it is. At this point it's become like a legislative policy kickball, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think by doing that and letting it get hung up in all this low-hanging fruit of the policy debate, you're going to really miss out on the bigger lessons of this report. Well, let's let's leave things here. What is your email address? Uh, Allie.Watkins at HuffingtonPost.com. Okay, so if all else fails, if you have the torture report, there are that's options. where you send it. There are <laughs> options. All right, thanks so much, Allie. Thank you for having me. So that's what happened this week. Zach Carter and I were joined by three of our favorite colleagues, Elise Foley, Kate Shepard, and Allie Watkins. The podcast was edited by Ibrahim Balki and sound engineered by Brad Shannon with assistance from Christine Canetta, Chris Gentileviso, and Adriana Ucero. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We'll be off next weekend for Thanksgiving break. We're thankful to you for listening. Have a great holiday. And we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.